Thanks for listening to Downrange. The podcast is absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episodes, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash range. In the fall of 2022, the historic Camden Foundation and the South Carolina Battleground Trust worked with archaeologists and forensic anthropologists at the Camden Battlefield to recover the remains of fallen soldiers whose graves were in jeopardy of being destroyed. No one was ever removed. They are all still right there where they were buried, usually right where they fell. Listen as the echoes of the past resound through the voices of those who performed the work in the present. Immerse yourself in the profound events of April 2023, when reburial ceremonies honored the soldiers. And allow mission history to whisk you away to America in the 1770s and 80s. Hear vivid tales of top generals orchestrating the tides of war, fearless battlefield commanders steering soldiers through the chaos, and the valiant men and women who fought on the front lines. From the cities of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, to the fields and swamps of the Carolinas and Georgia, experience the American Revolutionary war like never before. Search for Mission History on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Warning. This podcast contains adult content and recreations of battle scenes, including violence, gunshots, explosions, and graphic descriptions, which may be triggering for those with past trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Listen to your intuition. My spidey sense was going crazy. I had serious doubts. And instead of heeding it, I chalked it up as fear. I was like, that's just fear, you know, drive forward. I mean, I've pushed through fear before. But really, you know, I should have heeded it. It's unfortunate in combat that sometimes the hardest lessons learned are learned in blood.
Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. This is Downrange. I'm your host, Remy Adeleke. I spent 13 years in the Navy, with the majority of that time spent in special operations as a Navy SEAL. I could tell you that the trust and bonds you form with your teammates could be the difference between life and death on a battlefield. We spent a lot of our time together training, learning, and staying in shape for whatever situation was thrown at us. But what really matters in those tense moments of war is knowing that your teammates have your back. You've got to trust their judgment. And each man must operate with excellence within his role and responsibility. Our guest today, retired Navy SEAL Lieutenant Jason Redmond, knows more about that bond of brotherhood than anyone. He knows how unspoken connections can save your life, what it feels like when that trust and confidence slips away, and why it's important to never give up on yourself. So I am a retired Navy SEAL Lieutenant Jason Redmond, and I spent 21 years in the SEAL teams, both as an enlisted SEAL and then a SEAL officer. I am a uh, father of three, and I am blessed to have an incredible wife who I call the Long-Haired Admiral. I was born in a small town in Ohio. My parents divorced at a pretty young age. Fairly unusual at that time, my dad actually got custody. Definitely had a big appreciation for the military. A lot of stories about the military within my family. My grandfather served in World War II. He was a decorated B-24 pilot. And that's originally what I wanted to do when I was young. I wanted to be a pilot. My dad served in the Army. He was a uh, paratrooper and rigger. And he's actually the first one that ever told me about the SEAL teams. I was the most unlikely candidate. I wasn't this star athlete. I wasn't anything like that. Back then, I was a small kid. Everybody told me I wouldn't make it. And I think that just further fueled my fire. And I was like, well, you know, I'm gonna prove you wrong. Enlisted in the Navy on September 11th, 1992, while I was still in high school. I shipped off to boot camp right after I graduated from high school in uh, 1993. The one thing that kept me out of any real trouble is I knew that if I did drugs or if I got in legal trouble, it would jeopardize my chances of being a SEAL. I tried to stay smart and I tried to stay focused on what I wanted to do, which was be a SEAL. I got to my team, we focused on Central and South America and we were, we were jungle warfare experts. It's funny, some guys don't like the jungle. I love the jungle. There was just something, I don't know, mystical. For a young man, I mean, literally, I was 21 years old when I deployed for the first time. To go down there and be a part of a group that has a decent amount of resources and you have missions that you are conducting, in this case, counter-drug missions, where you're really trying to make a difference, was pretty amazing to me. We worked hard and we also played really hard and that probably, that probably got me a little off track. When I was younger, I probably had a little more ego and arrogance than I needed. That ended up getting me in trouble a little later in life. My role was intelligence. So at the camp, I was helping to collect intel. And I was also a trainer. So one of the things we were doing there was training the other military and working with them, teaching them marksmanship, helping them to fight the drug wars. Typically, there wasn't a whole lot of danger involved in that kind of trip. We also had trips that definitely had a higher level of danger. And I 
volunteered for every trip I could find where I was like, okay, if something's gonna go wrong, I wanna be on that trip. And I found myself at one point in um, southern central Colombia, really in the heart of where a lot of the drug trafficking and where the coca cultivation was occurring. You had a group in Colombia at the time, the counterinsurgency group, literally an army called the FARC. Fuerzas Armada Revolucionarios del Colombia. FARC basically looked to destabilize the Colombian government, but they also oftentimes provided security to the cartels and to a lot of the drug manufacturing that was occurring. And some of it was really organized, and some of it literally was mom and pops who were just trying to make a buck and take care of themselves. There was also the first time we ever technically got shot at. We were given information that there was a 400-man FARC element that was moving on this camp we were in. The U.S. military, our boss, was telling us, hey, get ready, if we tell you to leave, you're gonna leave. So one night while all this was happening, literally we were sleeping in our combat gear, ready to go at a moment's notice, and all of a sudden I remember in the middle of the night, like the whole world erupted. gunfire everywhere. I remember looking out the window. We were in these old World War II, like metal huts is what we were sleeping in in this Colombian camp. And I remember looking out and seeing all this tracer fire. All four corners of the camp were firing. I remember jumping down and grabbing my gun. It was just kind of chaos. People are running in all directions. My chief, my senior chief, was like, hey, get ready, we're gonna destroy all these radios, which is really, <laughs> it's like a big deal. You know, these radios are worth a ton of money, you know, encryption devices and all this stuff. It kind of died down and subsided. In the military, we call it reconnaissance by fire. Sometimes they'll shoot into an area to just watch what the reaction is, to gauge, you know, do we want to mess with this place or not? That large FARC element moved away, I guess. The response was aggressive enough. I came back after several deployments in Central and South America, and I became a training instructor. And a lot of people, when they think of a SEAL instructor, they think of an instructor directly at SEAL training when a guy goes through his basic SEAL training. But actually, every SEAL command has instructors who teach more of advanced tactics. So when you're done in multiple platoons, you now typically will become an instructor for a period of time to train the other platoons. I had several individuals that I worked with. My boss, who was the training officer, said, hey, you should think about becoming an officer. My dad was an officer, my grandfather was an officer, my sister was an officer, so I was like, yeah, maybe I should. And there wasn't anything going on in the world at this time. You know, a peacetime military, it was pretty quiet. I put in for a program called the Seaman to Admiral Program, got picked up to head to school fall semester of 2001. I checked out of my SEAL team in July of 2001, got married, checked into the school in August of 2001 and started classes, uh, you know, mid-August. And of course, 9-11 happened only a few weeks after I started school. I was at Old Dominion University right here in Norfolk. I decided to stay in the local area to go to school. I walked to the student center to get a cup of coffee 
And I remember getting my cup of coffee at Starbucks right in the student center. And a young kid handed me my coffee and he was like really nervous, like nervously laughing. Hey, uh, you know the world's coming to an end, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, man, the Pentagon is on fire and a plane crashed into the World Trade Center. And I'm like, what? So I took my coffee and I walked around the corner where they had some big TV screens in the uh, student center. And it was about that time a buddy of mine who was a fellow SEAL, we both got picked up for the program together and we were friends, he showed up. And we just stood there with, you know, hundreds of other students literally watching all this unfold. We have another copy. There is the second plane, another passenger plane hitting the World Trade Center. These pictures are frightening indeed. I remember going home to my family. They shut down classes and everything. My commanding officer, who was by far probably one of the best leaders I've ever, ever worked for, hands down, uh, very prophetically told me, Hey, Jay, this war will go on for decades. Go back to school. Finish strong. You'll get your chance. And he was right. So my first deployment was to Afghanistan. And this is where my career started to get off track a little bit. I'd really excelled up to that point in my career. I graduated from my ROTC unit, number one, and came back thinking, I'm gonna be God's gift to leadership. You know, I'm gonna be like, you know, Patton for the SEAL teams or something. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. All our tactics had changed overnight. There had been a massive rewrite of all our training tactics from when I was an enlisted guy. So here I was thinking, oh, I got all this prior experience. You know, I'm really gonna know what to do. I'm gonna be this great leader. And everything had changed. And instead of humbling myself and grabbing some of the new guys and being like, hey man, will you teach me how to do this? I really don't know how to do this. It's brand new to me. I didn't. And instead I kind of stumbled and struggled and. I drowned my sorrows with probably drinking too much, which further damaged my credibility. So it was kind of this perfect storm, slowly eroding my credibility as a leader. We were getting ready to do something we call a rotate in place because we wanted as many SEALs as possible to have combat experience. And we were only a few days, literally less than a week or two away from doing that rotation when everything that happened with Operation Red Wings happened. You all might be familiar with Operation Red Wings as the event that inspired the Mark Wahlberg movie, Lone Survivor. In 2005, four Navy SEALs were ambushed in the Kunar province of Afghanistan. Three of them were killed. Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy, sonar technician second class Matthew Axelson, and gunner's mate second class Danny Dietz. The helicopter that was sent after them was shot down killing all eight SEALs and eight Army Special Operations aviators on board. Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell was badly wounded in the attack, but was found by local villagers who saved his life until another SEAL mission, Red Wings 2, was able to come in and rescue him. On this operation, Jason made a combat decision that went against the orders of his higher command. He was hungry to prove himself, but it didn't work out the way he'd envisioned. In the military, especially during these complicated missions, Going rogue like that is a serious problem and can sometimes mean a difference between life and death. 
Disregarding orders can throw a wrench in the greater plan that's at play. Though his intentions were good in the moment, ultimately, he was not on the same page with his commanding officers and his unit. Marcus's team got overrun. Michael Murphy and Danny Dietz and Matt Axelson were killed. The helicopter was shot down, which had my boss, Eric Christensen, on it, and obviously the guys from Echo Platoon, who we had been training with and friends with for the last year and a half. We immediately flew to Afghanistan, and the recovery operations were still going on. So my first intro to real combat was literally a ramp ceremony for all my friends that had been killed. And I think it really impacted all of us within that platoon, even though we focused on the job and getting it done and being able to go out and conduct missions where politics were starting to play. We weren't always allowed to go out and conduct operations, which just further added to the frustration. September of 2005, I made a bad call on a mission. And instead of owning that bad call, because, you know, people make mistakes. People make mistakes in combat. And as long as it's not malicious, it can be used as a learning point. But where I got off track is instead of owning it and saying, hey, I made this mistake, it was a bad call, I fought back and was like, oh, no, you guys are throwing me under the bus. When, you know, the reality was it was, uh, it was a bad call. It was a bad tactical decision. And I think the combination of making mistakes when I was a new officer, drinking too much to deal with some of my frustrations, and now this became this perfect storm where I had teammates that said, hey, get rid of that guy, he's dangerous. And to be ostracized from a community that you put so much heart and soul in to be a part of it was probably the toughest blow I've ever sustained, I won't lie. When I got sent back and stood in front of the commanding officer, and he told me they were potentially talking about taking my trident, I went back to my room and put my gun in my mouth and thought about blowing my head off. I shook myself out of that and recognized that one, that I was dumb, and two, I had a wife and kids, and what kind, of, what kind of message does that leave for them? Thankfully, they didn't kick me out, and they didn't take my trident, but they did lay out some pretty stern pretty stern path to walk. And they basically said, hey, if you want to earn back to trust and credibility, then guess what? It's all on you. Any awards you're going to receive from this deployment have been taken away. You will receive nothing from this deployment. Step two, you're going to go to ranger school. And step three, you're going to be on probation for the next two years. So if you make any mistakes, you're out of here. And I'd love to tell everybody that I hit the ground running and was like, yeah, I'm just going to crush this. But I didn't. I actually still felt like a victim and still felt like I was being thrown under the bus and was very bitter about all of it. It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's a ball trimmer sent from space. Gentlemen, our friends over at Manscaped have been working night and day to bring you the below-the-waist grooming experience like none other with their brand new performance package, 5.0 Ultra. Featuring the Lawnmower 5.0, we're talking about a next-generation trimmer with interchangeable blade heads for whatever shave your mind can imagine. Upgrade your grooming game to the Ultra Spare this year by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code TD Downrange. Again, that's TD Downrange. High tech, 
for low places, Manscaped. AI is cool, but I think this might be the biggest technological advancement the world has seen in the past decade. Every man knows how scary it can get when going for a close shave below the belt. That's why I trust Manscaped for all my sensitive areas. It's great for my confidence. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 5.0, the Manscaped Boxers 2.0, and the Shed 2.0 Travel Bag. Bring your travel and comfort game to another level. I love the Weed Whacker 2.0. It also features skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code TDDOWNRANGE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code TDDOWNRANGE at manscaped.com. I can promise you've never seen a ball trimmer look like a spaceship. Get yours today from our folks at Manscaped. Winter is here, and for me, that means struggling to find the right temperature when I sleep. I recently found a way to stay at the perfect temperature all night long using silver-infused bed sheets by Miracle Made that were inspired by NASA. It's self-cooling properties for better quality sleep using silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA. Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get better sleep every single night. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and it feels as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five-star hotels. Go to trymiracle.com range to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we got a special deal for our listeners. You can save over 40%, and if you use our promo code RANGE at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle Made is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com range and use the code RANGE to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com range to treat yourself, a friend, or loved one this holiday season. The Rangers and Seals have a long-standing great relationship. Oftentimes we give each other a lot of grief. I felt that awesome love when I got to Ranger School with the amount of attention I got for being there, which only fueled my bad attitude. During his time in the Armed Forces, Lieutenant Jason Redmond had experience with both the Navy Seals and the Army Rangers. I can speak to the experience as a Seal but this would be a good time to introduce you to my downrange co-host, Rich Chapa, who you will hear from in future episodes. Rich is a former Army Ranger. Often Army Rangers act as a QRF or quick reaction force for Navy SEALs and other Tier 1 and Tier 2 Special Operations units. Here's Rich to weigh in more on this. The relationship between Army Rangers and Navy SEALs is important. One of the differences is that the Army Ranger units are, as opposed to being small units like the Navy SEALs where they operate more like special forces teams, Army Rangers serve and operate as full-on units organized along the lines of companies and battalions and brigades in order to seize an airfield, which is what they were designed to do. If you take a look at going into Kandahar, that was Army Rangers parachuting onto the airfield, seizing the airfields for the follow-on arrival of other forces. 
to build the bases so that you can conduct follow-on operations for some of those Navy SEAL and other Tier 1 units. Collaborative, for the most part, with a healthy dose of joking back and forth. When the Navy SEALs arrive, usually the first pallet off the back of a C-130 is hair gel and hair dryers. After that comes their weight set so they can continue uh, buffing up. And then only after that do they think about the mission. Whereas Army Rangers, whoa, arrive at the cutting edge of battle by land, sea, or air. <laughs> the first week of Ranger School is designed to try and weed out the people they feel like shouldn't be there. So it's designed to be very hard and designed to really put a lot of pressure and chaos on you. Day three, it started with a early morning land navigation course. I arrogantly was like, oh, well, I taught land navigation. You know, I'm a great navigator. I'm going to cross this course. And you know what? It's super dark, so I'm just going to wait for the sun to rise, and I'll knock out this entire course in half the time of everybody else. Dumb. And no, I didn't. You talk about a humbling experience. You know, there were six points. You had to get five to graduate. And I only got four, and I ran out of time. So when I showed up to check in and say, hey, I didn't get all my points, the ranger instructor started heckling me. I think everything that had happened kind of bubbled to the surface, and I was just like, screw you guys. And they were like, are you quitting? And I was like, yes, I'm out of here. So for the first time ever in my life, I quit. I knew that I was basically ending my career. SEAL teams do not tolerate quitting. It's not something we do. And uh, I was like, how do I get myself out of this situation? You know, how do I fix this? And when I met the Ranger Colonel, laid out, ah, you know, this sob story, I got thrown under the bus. And he was like, well, you know, I don't know about all that. You know, here, why don't you talk to one of your SEAL leaders? He happened to be friends with the same commanding officer who, when I was in school, and I went back and said, hey, take me out of school, who said, hey, this war is going to go on for decades. Well, that's who he was best friends with. And that is an amazing fate moment because, you know, the odds of that are astronomical. And he is probably the only guy that in that moment I would have talked to because, honestly, I was ashamed of what I had done. He got on the phone and he was just like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, you know, I, I've messed up and I don't know how to fix it. Honestly, I don't know how I can go back to the SEAL teams and guys will ever follow me again after these mistakes that I've made. He said, Listen, Redman, it doesn't matter how bad you messed up. People will follow a leader if they give them a reason to. Go back, finish Ranger School, and come back to the SEAL teams and do what's right. So I did, I hung up the phone and I asked the Ranger Colonel, hey, will you let me, uh, will you put me back in my class? And he was like, no. He was like, but I tell you what, I will roll you to the next class and you can go sit in Ranger School jail for a month while you think about how dumb you are. So for the next month, I got to walk around Fort Benning picking up trash. You know, here I was, a SEAL I'd been in for 13 years, but quickly realized that none of that really matters. I got flaws and we all have them. Really focused on that, hit the ground running, graduated, did very well with Ranger School after that. Came back to the SEAL teams and really just focused on slowly but surely earning back the trust of my teammates and trying to be the best leader I had the ability to be. So we launched Iraq in the summer of 2007. 
Our troop was working within the Ambar province, western Iraq, specifically out of Fallujah and in the outer-lying areas around Fallujah. Fallujah had really been the heart of al-Qaeda within Iraq, and we just focused on doing our job and going after mid-level and high-level insurgent and al-Qaeda leaders. It was everything that I ever dreamed of doing as a SEAL. It was very high pace. We were operating almost every night. I was with probably the best group of individuals I've ever had the honor to work with. The level of professionalism, the level of camaraderie was amazing. We travel in a couple of different waves when we're sending over a group of guys for a deployment. And the other SEAL team, there's an overlap that occurs. And that very first mission of the deployment, I wasn't on that mission, but several guys in our troop were. And they walked into a fierce gunfight right off the bat. A SEAL was killed, Petty Officer Clark Swedler was killed on that mission. The cell that they went after was linked to the number one leader for the Al-Ambar province for Al-Qaeda. And he was an individual that we really had tracked all deployment, trying to get him. We were getting close to the end of the deployment. I had redeemed myself. I was moving on to the next level of my career. And literally, we were packing up to go home. And we got word that that leader was going to be in a specific time and location, something we call a time-sensitive target. About 11 o'clock at night, we got word, yes, it's a go. We have an individual on the battlefield called the ground force commander. So he is overall in charge of the entire operation. And I was supposed to run as the ground force commander that night. And my boss came up to me and said, we think this is going to get pretty dicey. We think, you know, we're probably going to encounter some pretty heavy fire. I think I should probably run as the GFC. And he said, well, I'm going to place you in charge of the takedown of the actual structure itself as the assault force commander. So I said, hey, roger that. I agree. No issues. Thank you. And that's how the mission unfolded. Nothing ever goes according to plan in combat. We were landing right on the target, and we had planned on the helicopter landing a specific way. And we had our guys that were supposed to be the ones that go in the door, our breacher and the point man and guys like that. Well, it actually landed the opposite way. So it ended up being me and my team leader who didn't want to be the first ones in the door. You know, you want to be in a leadership position to help manage what's going on but it's just how things unfolded. And there's no time to rejock, to reposition yourself. So suddenly my team leader took off and I was right behind him. The door was unlocked, so he popped it. I threw a uh, flash crash grenade in. I fully expected to get all shot up when we stepped through that door. We had landed the helicopter right there. They can hear it coming. If there's anybody in there, it gives them time to set up. We made entry and nothing happened. So we searched the place. Somebody had been there recently, but there was nobody in the house. We called it Target Secure. Our guys did a lot of searching. We found IED making components. We basically were gonna blow all that stuff up and we thought that was gonna be it. And then we thought it was gonna just be a night. It was about 3 a.m. at this point. My boss, ground force commander came up and said, five guys run out of that building and hide in this dense vegetation across the street. Let's move. They were on the north side of that vegetation and we came up through the south. 
And we had a uh, AC-130 gunship up overhead that's got some amazing imagery equipment. And I kept asking them, can you see any weapons, any activity? And they said, no, they're just laying there. But they said, you're going to miss them. You need to turn to the right or you're going to miss these guys. And I said, okay. Well, when we did that, we ended up getting separated from part of our element. And we realized it pretty quickly. So we made the decision, hey, we're going to push out and we're going to move up to the north and then we're going to relink back up so we're not moving in this thick vegetation. Well, it was right about that time that we were doing that, that my medic literally stepped on an enemy fighter. And the enemy fighter tried to turn over with his weapon and they immediately engaged him. That became the catalyst that started this ambush. Those five guys that ran out were part of an ambush line that had positioned themselves within that vegetation facing to the north across the street. We were coming up from the south. But when we got separated, we ended up walking directly in front of their ambush line. Shit! Check fire! Check fire! Shit! Hey! Hey, we got guys over here! Know what the fuck you're shooting at! Know what you're shooting at! Oh, shit! Take cover! We estimate anywhere from 12 to 15 enemy fighters two PKM machine guns, which is a really large belt-fed weapon, shoots bullets about the size of my thumb. I've been shot at before, but nothing like this. Like, literally, they turned the machine gun on me, and I could feel rounds going by, the crack of rounds. I could feel the air pressure coming off rounds. I started getting hit. stitched across the body armor. I took two rounds in the arm, which I thought at the time shot my arm off. I mean, imagine if you will, when you hit your funny bone, it felt like that, but only amplified by like a million. Like an electrical shock traveled up my arm and slammed me in the back of the skull. And then suddenly I couldn't feel my arm. I reached over. I guess my arm caught on my gear, but when I reached it, I didn't feel it. So my first thought was... Holy shit. I got my arm shut off. My other guys were trying to fight their way back. Our medic was shot and pinned down. One of our other guys ran forward to grab our medic and start dragging him back, and he got shot up the right side three rounds. I was trying to lay down fire, and was yelling and suddenly took more fire. I took rounds off my helmet and at this point apparently turned to try and move back to the only point of cover, which was kind of like this large tractor tire about 15 yards behind me. And everything behind that was like empty Iraqi desert. Tried to move back to that when a round caught me from behind and hit me right in front of the ear, traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, blew out my right cheekbone, vaporized my orbital floor, broke all the bones above my eye, shattered my jaw, and knocked me out. So the guys saw me get hit and fall and originally thought I was dead.
came to, I guess, about five minutes later and was literally watching gunfire travel directly over me. I was laying flat on my back and I was watching tracer fire travel over me. So I think my first coherent thought was, don't sit up. So important safety tip for all of you out there. <laughs> if you ever wake up with gunfire and little laser beams traveling over you, don't sit up. And then I think my second thought was, man, I am in a bad, I'm in bad shape. I had my tourniquet strapped to three rubber bands to the top of my body armor above my magazines. I mean, it's three rubber bands, you know, you should be able to just break it off. But after losing all that blood and being shot, I couldn't break the rubber bands. And I remember laying there just trying to get this tourniquet off to get it on my arm. And then realizing that with the amount of blood loss that I was dying, you go through all kinds of trauma medicine. So you know the signs of going into shock. And, you know, I was getting cold. It was getting harder and harder to move my extremities. It was getting harder and harder to breathe. I'll be honest, I started thinking, you're dying, dude. That's a tough thing to come up against. So then I think it's only natural. I, you, you think about your wife and kids, or I did. You know, I think you think about your family. You know, we accumulate a lot of stuff in life, but you don't think about any of that stuff. I would have given anything to tell my wife and kids one more time, hey, I love you. And I thought to myself, man, I got to go home. I got to figure out a way to get home called out to the big man above and I just said, I, I need strength, I need strength to get home. At one, I got a little bit of strength, which was quite amazing. And two, this thought popped into my head. I had seen this show, Baghdad ER. It was all about our amazing combat sport hospitals, which is a combat emergency room. And I remember reading, if you showed up at that hospital with a pulse, you had a 90% chance of making it home alive. I grabbed onto that thought and I was like, that is the one thing I can control. I may not be able to control anything else right now, but I'm gonna stay awake to stay alive. That is what you have to do. That is your job. I've never felt fatigue like that in my entire life. Everything in me was like, just go to sleep. Just let go. I knew if I did, I would never wake up again. It was also at that point during a rolling fire, I called out to my team leader. You're still alive? Red, you're still alive? I was like, yes, how long to the medevac? Then he told me five minutes. It was at this point, I think they realized, hey, we've got to move forward and get him and save him. And they called for the first fire mission from the gunship. We were so close. I was only 45 feet from the machine gun that had me pinned down, which within the military, we talk about danger close parameters. When we fire munitions from bombs and bullets, it creates fragmentation from the explosions. So we figured out that if you are too close, you're within the danger close radius of this explosion and you have to be outside it in order not to be fragged or killed. So they initially said, no, there's no way, you know, you guys will be killed. A few more minutes went by, my team leader called again, and uh, they said, no way. This gunfight lasted anywhere from 35 to 40 minutes. And he called back again and said, hey, look, if you don't bring this mission in, there's not gonna be anybody left. We're running out of ammo, guys are bleeding out and dying, there's no place for us to go. 
So finally they agreed and he told him how to do it. And I remember him calling out to me. Incoming! Cover! The AC-130 gunship flies pretty high above the ground. So there is a delay. You will hear the guns go off and then there is a period of time before the rounds actually impact. So I remember hearing him say incoming and hearing the crump of the gun. And all of a sudden seeing the rounds or you know the explosions occur in front of me and suddenly the guns you know went quiet for a few moments or at least the machine gun that was in front of me and i remember listening to the enemy fighter call out in pain and my team leader at this point ran forward and got me and pulled me back to the tire he got a tourniquet on my arm saved my life to this day it was the closest fire mission in the entire iraq war Kudos and testament to my team leader for his amazing management of that situation and a huge kudos to the Air Force crew who rightfully earned distinguished flying crosses for that mission and the rest of the crew earned air medals and several other members of my team earned silver stars that night. A few minutes after that, brought in the medevac and my team leader <laughs> started to drag me, which was incredibly painful. I told him to stop and I said, hey, just help me get up. Grab my helmet and grab my arm. He was confused because obviously my arm was still attached to my body. Several years later, I got to meet the flight crew and they didn't know what happened to us. They also told us that they were configured really to fly one, maybe two injured and there were three of us in there. So they couldn't shut the door. They flew at top speed with the door open. So there was so much blood, he said that by the time they landed, the entire inside of the helicopter was coated in blood because of the wind swirling through. The other thing they told me that I don't remember, they had me leaned up against the wall and they would have me put my thumb on my chest. And the medic, as he was going from each guy trying to work on us to keep us alive, he would watch it, and if I drifted off, he would run over and like wake me up. Um, I was drifting in and out of consciousness, even though I was telling myself, stay awake, stay alive, and I don't ever remember that. It's funny, by the time I got to Bethesda, I was adamant I never lost consciousness. <laughs> then my guys got back and they're like, dude, you were out of it for <laughs> long periods of time. When I came to, I remember this enormous sense of elation, like, oh my God, I'm still alive. The first people that were there were my commanding officer and my command master chief. I tried to talk and nothing came out. So I was like, okay, can you give me something to write with? As I wrote out, are my guys okay? And uh, they told me, yep, they both were out of surgery and that they were gonna make it. And then I, was like, okay, has my wife been notified? And my CO said, yes. He had talked to her and told her that I was good. I guess I was trying to be funny, and I said, do I still look pretty? And uh, of course, in typical SEAL fashion, they said, no, you never did anyways. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues, this time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. 
but adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it powers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash range. There were long periods that I don't remember. I don't remember moving from Baghdad to Balad. They moved me to Balad where they take head injuries. I don't remember moving from Balad to Germany. And then from Germany, flew back to the United States, to Bethesda. Amazingly, all of that was within four days. If you're in a third world country, everything's different. In Iraq, there's always kind of this haze. The heat is stifling. So to get home in the fall, one of the first things I remember is it was cool. The air was crisp and it was clear. And I remember being on the highway and it was just kind of this surreal, like, man, several days ago, I was leading these amazing guys and doing these amazing missions. And now I'm like, I don't know, disabled, disfigured. I was terrified of seeing my wife. Uh, that was a really, that was a really big fear of mine. I didn't, uh, <clears throat> sorry. I didn't know how she was gonna take it. She laughs and she's like, what'd you think I was gonna do? There are a lot of people that say for better or for worse and not everybody buys into that when you're facing extreme health challenges. And I hadn't seen myself, I'll be honest, I didn't see myself actually for uh, about 10 days after I got back. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't let my wife see me. One, I wasn't quite ready, and two, I could still feel all this blood. And I told the nurse, I was like, you gotta clean me up some. She came into the room, looked amazing, smelled amazing, and just came right up and, she had a bad eye, man. You know, when you're in ICU, you, I mean, there's tubes and wires everywhere. I mean, you, they're, they're monitoring every part of your body. Man, she walked right up and just pushed those tubes aside and kissed me and said, hey, we're going <laughs> to be okay. So I was in Bethesda for about eight weeks at first. After that, it became about every eight weeks I would have a surgery. It slowed down probably the last year, final count of about 40 surgeries over four years. So it was about 10 days after I'd been in the hospital. And it was a little bit of an overwhelming day. The doctors were in there telling me all kinds of negative things. To be severely injured, it's not like breaking a bone where you go to the hospital and they say, oh, well, we're gonna set your bone and we're gonna put you in a cast and then in eight weeks, you're gonna be good. When you have really complex medical problems, 
so often they will come in and they go, here's option A and this could be the outcome and here's option B and this could be the outcome and here's option C, this could be the outcome. What do you want to do? And I remember my wife and I were so frustrated. We're like, we're not doctors. How do we know? But you had to make these choices. So on a regular basis, you were making these very heavy, potentially life-altering medical choices. And it was a day like that. And I had some other people that came into the room and they started to have a conversation off to the side. And I overheard parts of their conversation. And it was, you know, hey, what a shame. We send these young men and women off to war and they they come home broken and battered and they're, they're never gonna be the same. And I remember thinking to myself, is that me? No. I will tell you, and I talk to a lot of people about that path of failing as a leader and then fixing myself and coming back is probably the greatest thing that ever could have happened to me. And it's also the hardest path. So when that happened, I look back on it, laying in that hospital bed, and I was like, man, you've been through worse. From this point forward, I said, I am not gonna let anybody come into this room and feel sorry for me. And I refuse to feel sorry for myself. So when my wife came back, I asked her for a pen and paper and I wrote out this sign. And I didn't give it much thought, I just wrote it out. And it said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming in this room with sadness or sorrow, don't bother. The wounds I received, I got a job that I love, doing it for people that I love, defending the freedom of a country I deeply love. I will make full recovery. What is full, that is the absolute utmost physically, I have the ability to recover. And then I'll push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. And if you're not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And we signed it, the management. I told my wife to hang it on the door and somebody came in, they didn't read it. So I said, hey, can you find like the brightest piece of orange paper. Uh, she found like this bright poster paper and we transcribed it word for word onto that and put it on the door. A couple days later, a fellow SEAL took off his trident and tacked it into the bottom of the sign. He took a picture of it and ended up going viral. I wrote that sign as like a, hey, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself, so don't come into this room and feel sorry for me. But that sign now has gone on and impacted millions of people. When I talk to people about it, it all comes down to a choice. That's it. You know, it was just choosing to be positive in the face of negativity. It's just been humbling to see what that sign has done. Secretary Robert Gates wrote about it in his book. First Lady Michelle Obama wrote about it twice in her book. I've had people from all across the country reach out to me about the sign, how it's motivated and inspired them. I didn't keep it. I didn't feel like it was mine to keep. I got invited to the White House to meet President Bush because of the sign and asked him to sign it. And then we had it framed and we gave it to Bethesda Naval Hospital, which became the new Walter Reed. So it now hangs in the center of the wounded ward at Walter Reed. And I still have wounded warriors reach out to me and say, hey, I can't tell you how much that motivated me while I was going through my surgeries. I am a gigantic patchwork quilt now. It is amazing what they can do. So I have my leg bone in my face. They removed uh, cartilage and part of my rib to rebuild my nose. They remove skin and tissue from both legs and from my midsection to rebuild my nose. They removed a piece of my skull to rebuild my orbital floor. 
they had to rebuild my entire elbow. I wanted to get back operational, so it was one of my goals to increase that range of motion. And I've had a lot of doctors look at it and say, oh, we can do that, until they look at it under an x-ray. And then they're like, we have no idea how your arm is held together as it is. But it works. I have defied all the odds. The doctor who rebuilt it told me I'd probably never lift more than 50 pounds. A few weeks ago, I deadlifted 365 five times. It's my goal to deadlift 405, and then I'm going to stop, if that's good enough. <laughs> but it, it holds, and I've kind of figured out the difference. It's something I talk about in my book, Overcome, understanding the difference between pain and discomfort. Not pushing past pain where you can hurt yourself, but understanding, hey, this is uncomfortable, but it's good, it's strong. Being put into a leadership position is hard enough when you're not responsible for decisions with life and death consequences. Jason Redman's story reminds us to stay grounded when in those leadership roles. His story also inspired many to remain positive after being injured in battle. In Redman's mind, pity only serves to diminish the acts of valor that soldiers perform every day. When he was injured in the line of duty, Redman made it a point to stay positive and not let those injuries defeat his greater purpose. And that positivity changed the lives of countless wounded soldiers encountering the same hardships. I'll close with this thought on leadership. In order to be a great leader, you must first be a great follower, listener, and excellent within your role and responsibility. No leader should ask their subordinates to do something that he or she has not done or is not willing to do. To lead, you must first follow, listen, and operate with excellence. I guess I'll close with, it's never too late. I meet a lot of people who have messed up. I meet a lot of people that have damaged relationships. A lot of people who have gone down a path of their life where they think that there's no turning back. Until you take your final breath, you always can turn things around. It may not be the outcome that you thought it was going to be, but you know, you at least can, man, leave this earth with no regrets. Like, hey, I took care of that problem, or I addressed this, or I fixed this. So it's never too late to turn it around and move in the right direction. I think my life proves that. So I encourage anybody out there, if there's anything left undone, do it now. This life is short. Your days are not promised. You never know when your day is coming. Live greatly and do it now. Downrange is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. Our hosts are former Navy SEAL Remy Adeleke and former Army Ranger Rich Chapa. Our senior producers are Meredith Stedman and Mike Rooney. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. From Telegraph Creative, executive producers are Cliff Sims and Darren McBurnett. From Extreme Concepts, executive producer is Landon Ash. Produced by Eric Quintana, Tracy Kaplan, and Jamie Albright. Dramatization casting and directing by Greg Cooler. Sound designed by Cooper Skinner. Mix and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Christina Dana. 
Marketing and Branding by Telegraph Creative. This episode features the song Fire and Smoke, written by Benjamin Rubino, Bo Steele, and Stacey Stavola, performed by the band Steele, courtesy of Fire River Records. This episode features voice acting by Nicholas Takoski, Ryan Jones, Greg Cooler, Cooper Skinner, and Kevin Stilwell. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing. Visit us at downrangepod.com or on social media at Downrange Podcast. Thanks for listening. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you look forward to the holidays? Maybe you struggle with seasonal blues. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded, and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and it powers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who experience major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash range. The potential for cold fusion is indeed enormous. There basically is an infinity of energy in the oceans of the world. Dr. Eugene Maloff believed a new form of free energy would save the world. Even when his life's work was pushed to the fringes, he dedicated his life to a brighter future. But he'd never lived to be part of that future because of what happened one spring night in the driveway of his childhood home. They just said, if Eugene's dead, I said, what on earth did he die of a heart attack? She said, no, he was killed. He was murdered. This is a story about one man's quest to expose the truth, the lengths he went to to save the world, and how that dream caught up with him. Search for Crime Waves Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.